This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Narcissism. It's truly one of the most important words of our time. Ceaselessly discussed in the media, the subject of millions of online searches, and at the center of serious social and political debates. But what does narcissism really mean? In The New Science of Narcissism, Dr. W. Keith Campbell pulls back the curtain on this frequently misused label, presenting the most recent psychological, personality, and social research into the phenomenon. Hello, and welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Keith Campbell to the podcast today. W. Keith Campbell is a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia and the author of more than 200 papers and several books. He joins us today to talk with us about his latest book, The New Science of Narcissism. Keith Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Renee. I appreciate it. Why did you choose to begin your book and introduce the concept of narcissism with an example of narcissism-driven mass murder? Uh, You know, it... It's when I go back and look at when I started studying narcissism in the you know 90s, I'd say early 90s, um, one of the biggest events that happened was the school shooting at Columbine. And that was sort of spurred uh, Gene Twenge and I to start studying narcissism and rejection and, and violence. And so that, that aspect of narcissism has been interesting. In the case of the school shooting I used to to start the book, the, the case of Elliot Rogers, it's particularly an interesting case because it captures the two faces of narcissism pretty well. It captures the more grandiose, you know, I'm going to go out there and, and shoot people and think I'm an alpha male side. But it also captures the vulnerability, the insecurity, the sort of the isolation you see with more vulnerable narcissism. So it's really, it was a complex case. And that's why, in part, I wanted to, to start with that. And we've just had the most recent one in Highland Park, uh, Illinois. I, I don't want to diagnose him, but mass murders are with us. Yeah. And these, you know, I've been watching these school shootings since it, it, they started. And after 9-11, I thought they would go away and they did a little bit, but they're back and it's changed. And some of it is very narcissistic. Some of these cases, the people see more 
much more impaired psychologically, like the, you know, more sort of delusional and, and maybe more extreme than just narcissism or psychopathy. So we're seeing some of that now too. And we'll get back to those. But first, unpack your definition for us. You write it at core, narcissism is about self-importance, antagonism, and sense of entitlement. Yeah. So when most people use the word narcissism, they, they're kind of using it to mean you're a self-centered jerk. I mean, that's, the, that's what it boils down to. It's usually a pejorative. Um, but what it means you know, in the, in the research world, in the psychology world, is it's a personality trait, meaning we all have some of it. There's higher or lower levels. The core of narcissism, as you just described, seems to be this sense of self-importance, sense of entitlement, sense of specialness. I'm superior to other people. I deserve special things. So that's the core, but that core can go in a couple different directions. What most of us are familiar with is this more grandiose face of narcissism. So you take that self-importance, but you add charisma and energy and extroversion and desire for leadership, and you end up with a politician or your ex-boyfriend or your ex-boss that was kind of a nightmare. But that's the more grandiose side of narcissism. Um, if you take that same self-importance and you add insecurity and defensiveness and vulnerability and maybe some low self-esteem, you end up with more vulnerable narcissism, which most of us don't see as much in the world around us. But if you're in the clinical world, if you're you know in psychotherapy, psychology, you see a lot more vulnerable narcissism because you end up in in you know needing help for depression or anxiety. And is antagonism a feature of both kinds of narcissism? Yes, yes, exactly. Antagonism is, it, it's kind of the core trait that, that you influences both forms of narcissism. Antagonism is the, really the flip side of the trait we call agreeableness, which is about being nice and cooperative and polite and getting along with people. The flip side of that antagonism, which is being callous, a little self-centered, not really getting along, is, is core to narcissism. But don't we need some measure of narcissism in order to function, to compete for jobs or, or public office, as you mentioned, even to present ourselves to a date or to act as a parent, I, and what would a person with zero narcissism be like? Yeah, I, I mean, the answer is for sure you need some narcissism just to survive, and especially in those areas where you need to perform publicly. So maybe it's becoming a leader, maybe it's speaking in public, maybe it's going to a party and having to meet a bunch of people. So having a sense of confidence in yourself, thinking you're attractive, thinking you have value, thinking you're special, that will help motivate you in a lot of those situations in sort of starting relationships or in the short term. So it's important that people have some, you know, some amount of narcissism. If you've got none, you could end up like a doormat. The challenge is when your narcissism becomes too elevated and it becomes inflexible. You can't form relationships with people. You can start relationships, but you can't keep them going. You know, your kids become props for your own ego. You know, your workplace becomes all about you rather than the organization. And you end up seeing all these dark, dark sides of narcissism pop up. 
Okay, let's go to the dark side. What's the dark triad or malignant narcissism? Yeah, that's that's really two things that come up a lot. So one is this idea of a dark triad. And what that is, is a group of three traits that share a core of antagonism or what dark means in the dark triad is antagonism. And the the three traits that make up the dark triad are narcissism, which we've been talking about, psychopathy, which is a cousin of narcissism. It's like narcissism, but you're a little more into power and control than into having attention and admiration. And then the third member of the dark triad is a trait called Machiavellianism, which comes from, you know, the, the Machiavelli's book, The Prince. It's really a trait that focuses on manipulating people and controlling people. So you see a lot of these more Machiavellian figures in politics and things because it's about control. Um, so those are the dark triad. Malignant narcissism is a, is a specifier or a specific form of narcissism that, that is linked with sadism and psychopathy and meanness. So it's kind of a very dangerous and toxic form of narcissism that you see in the extremes. Um, the, the most damage you'll see is with malignant narcissism. It's just the most psychopathic, dark form of narcissism that you find. Is that what you think the mass shooters have? You know, I, it's with some of the mass shooters, what you're seeing is this, these are kids. They're just, they're just kind of not, they don't have it all together. Um, And sometimes what you see are people trying to establish dominance. So they, they want to show they're powerful, important. And the way they do that is they, they write a manifesto saying that they're powerful, important, and then they go do a crime and get attention in the media. So yeah, it's narcissism. It's it's malignant. I mean, it's not good. Um, but these are often young people doing this one time. Where you'd see more classic malignant narcissism is somebody who's made a lifestyle out of this. Somebody's older, somebody who's got some power, somebody who's really manipulative and controlling. And, you know, it, it just a more, it's maybe a more developed version of, of what you see with the young kids. And we usually think about these examples, uh, the the evil narcissists, the dangerous narcissists, as being male. Is narcissism a sex-linked characteristic? Are they mostly men? That's a great question. So it, it really depends on the form. If you look at grandiose narcissism as a trait, you see it a little bit more with men. But the difference isn't huge. I mean, it's a correlation. It's like 0.2 with being male. So it's not, a, it's not a huge difference. You don't see any difference with vulnerable narcissism. But there's a third form of narcissism, which I didn't really get into, which is the clinical or psychiatric disorder, which is narcissistic personality disorder. And this is when narcissism becomes very extreme it becomes inflexible. It's been with you since you were a kid, and it starts to really impair your life. You know, it ruins, it damages your relationships, it damages your work. Um, when narcissism becomes becomes clinical, um, 
So I just lost the thread of my. I just lost the thread of my women. answer, Renee. It was it was yes, about women. I, yeah, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> so when you start going to that full blown NPD, and you look at the gender breakdown, it's about three quarters men. So at the very extreme end of narcissism, you see more men. That could be because there's more men at that level. It also could be when you see women with that level of narcissism, maybe they're being diagnosed differently. Maybe they're being diagnosed as histrionic or borderline or something along those lines. So there could be that there's a bias in the diagnosis, or it could be that they're just, you know, far more men with that extreme clinical form of narcissism. Uh, If you've ever worked in, I'm a psychologist myself. Uh, If, if you've ever worked with the world of addictions, um, you find very often there's kind of an inside joke among uh, people in recovery who say, I'm the worst person in the world. They actually say it more colloquially. Uh, I'm just a terrible, awful person, and I'm the biggest awful person there is. Uh, is that a reflection of narcissism? That's, that's, that's a very interesting, I hadn't, it reminds me of notes from the underground, the old Dostoevsky story, but it's that, you know, I'm the worst person ever. And there's sort of a narcissism to that. I'm so bad. And it becomes a bit of bragging about, you know, how bad you are as a way of getting status. Um, So I could see that being in a way, some narcissism there. Uh, you do see narcissism and addiction go together. People often, you know, will the theoretically at least, you know, you, you're narcissistic and maybe you you're getting negative feedback, so you use cocaine or you use alcohol as a way to kind of buffer some of the negative feedback you're getting, allowed you to keep that positive view of yourself going. So you do see you do see narcissism and, and addiction sort of swim together. But yeah, it it sounds narcissistic, but it also might be part of the healing process. It's like you align your ego with your, you know, with how bad you are. And maybe that's a way to transform that's helpful in the long run. Right. You're at least the best at being bad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in your book, you make a, a brief reference to a 2016 study uh, that associated religious fundamentalism with the vulnerable dark triad. Uh, What's the thinking behind that finding? And also, is more work being done on personality and fundamentalism? Yeah, I think that's really, you know, it's, you see these findings come up, but it gets tricky because it has to do with how you're defining things like fundamentalism, et cetera. Generally, what you'll see is that in in religious spaces, people who are more grandiose will end up moving towards positions of power or authority. So you go to churches and people who are more grandiose narcissists will have bigger congregations, be more successful. So there's some benefit towards rising up in any power structure, including a religious power structure, with grandiose narcissism, with vulnerable narcissism, because of some of the protected, you know, you need some of that psychological protection. You could see a draw to any 
ideological system that would give you some of that. So it could be fundamental, fundamentalist religion that gives you sort of a belief set where you can say, I'm better than you because I have these beliefs, but they're, they're not really yours. So you can kind of hold them because you're vulnerable. But you could see it with the uh, political ideology as well. Theoretically, again, we just need more research on those kind of questions. So uh, could it be, am I understanding you right, that that the charismatic, powerful religious leader is there in part because of his uh, narcissism, and the followers are there because of their vulnerable narcissism? <laughs> it, it, the, the first part is definitely right. You see that the, the, the spiritual and religious community is filled with ego. It's filled with narcissism. Um, the followers, you see more vulnerability, but I also think you see more kind of kindness and niceness, meaning that you have a religion that's supposed to be about being a good person. The leaders are in it maybe in part for power, and they might not be good people, but the followers might be the good people that are doing it for the right reasons, if that makes sense. So I try to distinguish between the, the leaders and the followers. Well, because we're... The, sorry. No, go on. Well, because up, up till now, we've been talking about narcissism as if it's completely a trait uh, or a pathology of the individual, not, uh, not a culture, not part of, not coming from the culture or, or the interaction between one kind of person and the other. You know, the, the sadist needs a masochist uh, and vice versa. So you're saying that at least in the, in the arena of religious fundamentalism or cults or charismatic leaders and their followers, that's not the dynamic as far as you can guess. Uh, not maybe in, in smaller cults, but in general kind of, you know, classic religion. Uh, no, you see, you see the grandiose narcissist going for the status, but the followers I think aren't necessarily in it for the control. Again, cult, you know, a smaller cult with a really powerful leader that isolates people. I think it's a different situation right, than right. a mainline, you know, religious organization. Sure. Now, of course, Donald Trump is the poster boy for narcissism. Uh, talk about how that personality trait, or worse, or disorder, uh, has helped and harmed him in his life. Oh, sure. I mean, Donald Trump's an interesting case because we actually have some some pretty good research on it. And in the case of of Trump, if you ask people to rate his personality, um, almost everybody rates him as narcissistic. Everyone says he's bold. Everyone says he's sort of self-important. Everybody says he's extroverted. Um, where you see a difference, and this is the difference you see with, you know, across politics, is the people that support Trump say, yeah, he's a narcissistic guy. He's a fighter, but he also cares about me and is a good guy. He's on my team. And the people that don't like him say he is out of control. He is he has no impulse control. He's basically a maniac. 
So they so what happens is you can have people go, yeah, this leader's kind of a narcissist, but the people who support him go, he's my guy. I support him. He wants what's best for the people. People against him go, the person's a maniac. So you often will see with narcissistic leaders this very this large split in their support base. But they have a lot of support. That's why they're leaders. And you can see this. I mean, you you see narcissistic leaders all over the world and they'll have this big rise to power and then they'll, you know, it'll blow up at some point and fall apart. But but Trump was the poster child because he came out of the entertainment world. And so he's been he's been sort of a classic 80s self-promotional narcissist his whole life. I mean, I've been looking at Trump my whole academic career. It's kind of an interesting case. But if you look at political leadership, the, the ego is everywhere. That's right. In fact, some activities like political leadership in democracies, especially, uh, they demand extraordinary, extraordinary levels of narcissism. I mean, if you think about the United States, it, how narcissistic does a person have to be to run for president, to stand up and say, out of 350 million U.S. citizens, I'm the best person to lead the country, and then have to repeat that and persuade people in public for the next two years of a campaign. Oh, yeah. And a huge social cost to your family, your personal life, everything else. So you everybody around you gets shredded. Your kids get shredded. You know, privacy is gone. You have to have an enormous ego uh, or you have to be willing, you know, or you have to be an enormous <laughs> saint to want to be willing to give up your life for the betterment of other people. But it's one or the other. And it's usually ego. And if you're an enormous saint, maybe you need some narcissism too. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, there's there's a lot of ego in the saint community as well. You just you hope they transcend it at some point. Okay, now most uh, political leaders still uh, around the world, as well as religious leaders that we mentioned, are are male and have been male. So. When a, when a woman rises to leadership, and maybe not international leadership yet, or not so many, but in the business world, in the academic world, there there are uh, examples of strong women leaders. How is their narcissism the same or different? You know, that's one of those questions that people talk about a lot. And I wish I could say, you know what, there, you know, Renee, there's this great study where we looked at the differences in, in narcissistic women and men leaders. And here's what we found. I just don't have that study. What I have is talking to people about it. The general, you know, the general insight is that for female or women leaders, if you're over the top narcissistic, it's going to it's going to bite you. You can't be as over the top as men because it, it, because of the social norms. So it's harder to be as sort of overtly self-promotional as, you know, being a female Trump would be harder. What you end up with is, is maybe a presentation that looks more controlled, like uh, I'm forgetting uh, the head of Theranos, Elizabeth 
uh, forget her name, right? Um, that would dress like Steve Jobs and changed her voice to look very controlled and empower. And so you do see things like that, but even in those cases, it's not as over the top. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a a good sort of would. Is there a female Donald Trump leader in the world I can think of? And I I just can't think of one like that. You can think of you know very powerful women. Um, but they, their presentation is much more controlled and less in your face. And I think some of that is just socially what you can get away with. Right. I mean, a female and- Bor- you, you compare Margaret Thatcher to Boris Johnson, talking about narcissism in recent politics. And they're just very different people. Margaret Thatcher was highly controlled. She was high power focus, you know. Um, Boris Johnson's entertainer. Just different yeah. And God, he's out of different. and he's out of office. Right. Of That's what I mean. I mean. They kind of just drummed him out, uh, I guess, yeah. this morning. But he's, you know, has this very nar- I just read some data on his personality. I don't know how accurate it is, but very narcissistic and sort of sort of extroverted, psychopathic, likable, charming personality, if you like him. Um, but he presented much more like a clown than Margaret Thatcher could because of he's a guy. The woman just couldn't get away with that, I don't think. Right. And actually, that's a very interesting comparison because she certainly was self-confident and extroverted and emphatic, but yes, very tightly controlled. And Yeah, uh, but people, you know, there was a, she had a lot of hate back then and a lot of people would consider her a very narcissistic, power-hungry leader, but different presentation than Johnson. A lot more controlled, a lot more responsible seeming, a lot more, you know, confident, probably induce more confidence in people. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's move back to the 21st century and and social media, which seems tailor-made for narcissists and also tailor-made to make narcissists. Uh, it, it, what did you mean in the book when you wrote... Um, not only do narcissists make themselves feel good on social media, they make others feel bad. Yeah. So there's there's a couple ways that works. So social media, because and you know, this is like the classic, you know, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Um it really works well for narcissism because it gives you an opportunity to present yourself in as positive light as you want. You you can, you know, basically you have a little TV studio and you can go out there and get attention and popularity. So people are narcissistic is this is great. A lot of shallow relationships, chance to get attention, chance to be popular. The the downside of that for other people is one, you sometimes what you'll see with narcissism, though this isn't necessary, is you'll see the more, you know, the trolling and the sadism online. But more, more, what's more negative, I think, is just the com- social comparison processes. So somebody who's narcissistic says, here's my selfie of me in a private plane doing all this cool stuff. I'm going to, you know, going to the south of France for the summer. What are you up to? And you look at that and go, well, I'm just staying at home working. I feel like a loser. So some of it is these narcissistic, 
you know, these influencers are putting out such positive images of the, of their life that it makes everyone feel bad in comparison. And then you also get this fear of missing out when it happens, when it happens with your friends, so your narcissistic friends are always posting all the cool stuff they're doing. You always feel like you're not invited. You're a loser. So it's, it's a bit of a zero sum game online where narcissists can get a lot of attention, a lot of status, but the people who don't get the attention and don't get the status are the, the less narcissistic people on there, the followers. Ah, but the, but the narcissists who are painting such a positive picture of themselves and their life, uh, they are not necessarily doing anything they're they're neither intending nor acting directly in order to make other people feel bad is that is that no no except is that you know i mentioned briefly the case of trolling or you know you do see online bullying and mobbing and sadism and that is associated with narcissism but i think more of it is just setting the tone for the online culture and doing it in such a way that other people feel bad but it's not intentionally done to make other people feel bad. It's done to make the narcissist look good and better than other people. The, the tragedy of the commons is uh, increasingly evident in our political life. We, we saw it just days ago when after the Uvalde shootings uh, and the struggle to get any kind of uh, gun control legislation. Um, talk about what it is and how narcissism plays a role in that phenomenon, the tragedy, the comments. Yeah. So if you boil down, you know, human social conflict into these big challenges we have, one of the most important ones is the tragedy of the commons. And the, the idea of tragedy of the commons, it comes from grazing on common ground. So imagine, you know, everybody can graze 10 sheep on this, on this common grazing area and everybody's fine. The grass grows back. But somebody goes, you know what? I'm just going to graze 12 sheep. Who's going to know? And so that person get, grazes 12 sheep and then they benefit a little bit. And then other people go, ah, that person's doing 12 sheep. I'm going to do 12 sheep too. Pretty soon the grass isn't growing back. And next thing you know, the commons are dead. There's no more commons. for So everyone loses. So the tragedy of the commons is when somebody does something for their own short-term interest, but it's at the cost of the common good for everyone. And this happens all the time. Um, Lots of examples with fisheries and natural resources, but it happens with lots of things. What we know from research is that people who are narcissistic are the ones that will kind of start these commons dilemmas. So who's going to graze the most sheep? Well, the person who's narcissistic is going to graze a little more sheep. Who's going to, you know, cut down more forest or overfish or go past the quota fishing? Yeah, it's the person who's narcissistic. So these narcissistic individuals, when they get in these social contexts, will break the rules for their own interest. And that will lead to this broader social collapse because then no one's taking care of things. So it can be really destructive. Of course, we don't know what the internal process is, but uh, let's, let's just speculate about it a little bit. Does the narcissist in that situation 
say to himself or herself, let's be fair, uh, <laughs> um, it doesn't matter. It won't make a difference in the greater scheme of things. So what if I graze a couple of extra sheep? Is that a lack of empathy or a lack of value to the other person's need? Because it's, there's a difference between not recognizing that your action causes pain and difficulty to others and recognizing it, but not caring. Too bad. I yeah. I want it. Yeah. That's that's great, and that's the the term they use in the narcissism literature to capture that as sort of the difference between like an oblivious narcissist. Yeah, I'm just doing what's in it for me and just not paying attention to anyone else, or someone who's actually a little bit mean and psychopathic and like, yeah, it's kind of good to crush the competition. I think with narcissism, what you see is you see a general you know, self-centered and competitive viewpoint. So winning is really important. And if, you know, I get 12 sheep, I won. So I think there's this, a competitive piece. And also I think about this as like an exploitative, uh, interpersonal style, which is a fancy way of saying that like people are narcissistic, will go through life like locusts exploiting whatever they get in front of them in the short term and then moving on. So in relationships, they'll start a relationship with you. It'll be great for a while. It'll fall apart. They'll start a relationship with somebody else. They'll graze sheep on the commons. They'll graze too many sheep. Commons gets destroyed. They go find another commons to destroy. So it's almost like a, a moving exploit, exploitative strategy. And that's why what I tell people, if you want to see if somebody's narcissistic, you look at their past and what you'll see is a trail of destruction behind them because they've exploited people in close relationships. They've exploited people at work. They've taken advantage of people. So I think it's just a general process of short-term exploitation as being the way to go for, for certain people. Well, one of your research findings is, uh, if I can say it colloquially, uh, nice guys finish last. And or or as you say, it's so much better. Uh, antagonistic, disagreeable people make more money. Yeah, is that more of the same, or is there something? Yeah, go ahead. It, it's yeah. it's more of the same, and there's some a couple other things that go in with that. So there's, like I said, there it's good research on this, looking at antagonism, looking at narcissism, and, and money. Um. Part of it is the competitiveness, part of it is exploitiveness, and part of it is just asking for more. So part of when people get salary and they go through salary negotiations, and you see these effects are bigger in the U.S. than in Germany because of the way we do this, people who are narcissistic are more likely to go to their boss and say, pay me more. And so some of that just sense of entitlement and willingness to ask for more works, and so just you end up with more money that way. So some of it is just being entitled and asking for more. Some of it is trying to be a leader. Some of it is just, you know, taking advantage of people in a variety of ways. I've seen research that shows, and they, these are mostly small studies, social psychological ones that are set up in a controlled environment that basically show that um, belligerent aggressive people 
not only seem powerful, uh, but are also uh, attractive to the to the people watching. I'm thinking of a little study uh, that that had someone in a uh, restaurant put his feet up on the table and take out a cigar in a place where you're not allowed to smoke and and speak in an aggressive way to the waiter. And the people at the other tables were asked about him, and a good percentage of them thought he was a person who was powerful and knew his mind and what they were likely to follow him. Yeah. Uh, it, does that... Does that correspond with your research? Yeah, because so what you find is an alignment between power and narcissism in a way that people with status and power act in a more narcissistic way. So if you have a lot of power, you just walk in a restaurant, light a cigar. People go, well, that guy's got to have a lot of money or he's got to have a lot of power to do this or else he would have been thrown out or something bad would have happened. So sometimes just acting that way makes people assume that you're a powerful and important high status individual. But often there's a trade-off between thinking somebody has power and status and actually liking the person. So if you said, how much power and status does this person have with smoking the cigar? You'd say, yeah, they've got some power and status. If you said, how warmly do you feel towards this person? How much love does this person engender from you? It wouldn't be as much. So often that break up, breakdown between status and power versus affection and, and warmth and love is where you see the difference that narcissists will get the power but not the affection. Right. And, and that's why, if I'm remembering right, the question was, would you follow him as a leader? It was not, would you go out on a date with him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and and you might, because it might seem exciting. And then what you're going to hope is after you get to know this person, they're going to turn out to have a heart of gold. They're going to be kind of this arrogant, tough guy, but deep down, they're going to be really a loving, caring nurturer. And, and that's not going to happen, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Right. Um, yeah. How, how does narcissism change over the lifetime? Uh, because if you think about it, a, a little infant is the perfect narcissist. The baby is the center, not only of its own world, uh, the center and the periphery <laughs> of its own world, uh, but also of the household. He usually becomes, at least for a little while, a little tyrant in the, in the family. Uh, what do we know about the developmental changes in narcissism? Yeah, that's something, you know, Freud pointed out is that way, way back when talking about narcissism is that with these, you know, with infants, that's what you get is you just see a lot of narcissism. And if you have a three-year-old running around the house naked saying, look at me, you know, you don't go, that person's got a disorder. You go, well, that's a healthy kid, right? That's so, so there's this idea, uh, narcissism isn't a term I use with young kids. I just don't think it's really the best way to think about it um, because it's a normal part of development. I think where you see, you know, you start talking about narcissism, we have research that you can trace it back to younger kids. You can see it in high school. Um, but generally, you know, where you see the higher scores are going to be young people, 18 to 24. 
And that makes some sense. You're young, especially you're a young guy. You're out there trying to start relationships. You're trying to get a job. You're trying to, you know, move to the city. You're trying to know people. And you could see a real, you know, some benefit for narcissism at those younger ages. As people get older, narcissism looks like it declines, which again makes sense. You, you know, you're narcissistic when you're trying to break into career, establish yourself. But as you get older, you start maturing in your relationships, maybe with a family or with love relationships. Maybe you get more involved with your communities, you get older, and that narcissism gradually wears away. So I say there's nothing sadder than being a, you know, narcissistic 75 year old. It's just, it's sad. You lost your looks, you're out there you look pathetic and then you end up dying alone. It's not what you want. Um, but with young kids, narcissism makes a lot more sense. You know, with, with 18, 20 year olds, it, 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 it has, it's more adaptive. Sure. It's more adaptive and it also covers the gaps that you don't, you don't know if you can make it when you're 18 or 20, whether you can do what you'd like to do or become what you want to become. And, if you're a narcissist, it carries over the the unknown variables. <laughs> that yeah, I you, like that. You just yeah. kind of go for it, right? Right? Or you, or or it's delusional. Or, you pretend. Yeah. <laughs> you pretend. Or you don't that, go for it. And you sit in your basement yeah. for sit in your mom's basement for ten years, and then right. you tell everybody that, you went for it. Yeah, you have a narcissistic deficit there. Yeah, um, we never talk about that people who are insufficiently narcissistic do we not really no no i and I, I think it's just the focus of the variable i mean we it, i guess if we were talking about something like dependent personality disorder or something where people would be really on the opposite side um it's just not as fun to talk about i don't think yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, it's just people aren't That's that interested Right, right. Narciss narcissists are entertaining, if yeah. not, if not uh, agreeable. Right? right. That's what I. I mean, that's what I say. It's like you know, you look at who they make movies about. It's, it's you know, the, the yeah. narcissistic leaders. And we have many movies lately about cons, men and women, who are extreme narcissists, so much so that they've been able to fool other people in some major, major way. And there have been a lot of uh, opinions expressed about narcissism increasing over time in the culture. Uh, do you think that's correct? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to, to, to look at that question of cultural narcissism. And, and when Gene Twang and I wrote a book called the, the Narcissism Epidemic, and it's been about, I think we wrote it right before the great financial crisis. So maybe it was 07 when I was typing that thing up. Um, and we really looked at narcissism as a cultural phenomenon, not just the our individuals narcissistic or getting more narcissistic, but is society getting more narcissistic? Are baby names becoming more individualized? Are song lyrics changing? Are is our language changing? Are different things happening? Um, and to me, it seems like with on a lot of markers, the culture is getting more individualized, self-absorbed. I mean, we see more narcissism when we turn on social media because that's where it thrives. 
So I think the culture is narcissistic and, and sort of going in that direction. But then the second question, are what about the individuals? And when we look at college students, because that's about all we have data on, narcissism was trending up um, through the great financial crisis in the early like 2010s. And then it started going back down with the, with the college students. And part of that seemed to be linked with the unemployment crisis that happened. So right now, and I don't have data for the last few years, my guess is that narcissism with college students is relatively low compared to how it was 10 years ago or lower than 10 years ago. We see a lot more depression now, probably more vulnerable narcissism than we did 10 years ago. Um, So the individuals are changing in a different way than the culture if that makes sense. Well, that is that is interesting and 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 I'll I'll ask you the final question which is in that arena. Um it, what do you think is the relationship between narcissism and the decreasing trust in our institutions and our concepts, for example, the the post-truth world. Yeah. You, yeah. What, oh, sorry, what I think? didn't. I jump in there because I get so excited. Because yeah, this is something we looked at. I mean, we we really took a deep dive into trust about five six years ago, and I've been following the data on. And so these are data they collect on institutional trust. Do you trust the military? Do you trust the politicians? Do you trust big business, etc.? And different organizations capture this trust. In a high trust society, you see less narcissism because like everybody is part of a community and part of a family. You 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 don't need to be so egocentric and self-absorbed if people are trusting and helping each other out. With low trust societies, you see more narcissism because people have to be more self-protective. They have to look out for number one more. They're looking out for themselves, maybe their families. So if you look across cultures, you see low trust societies have more narcissism. And right now what we're seeing in the U.S., and I'm, I'm sure this is, I shouldn't say sure, I think this is likely happening across a lot of Western, maybe a lot of societies in general, is we're seeing a, a lack of trust. In the U.S., it's incredible how, how bad trust is. Low trust environments are, are perfect for narcissists. Because they go out there and just go, okay, look at me, I'm in charge, I'm going to take care of myself. And that's what we're creating. Yeah. Oh, that's sobering. Yeah, it's not great. It's just not great. No. The book is The New Science of Narcissism. It's really a fascinating topic. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about it today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.